Hello and welcome to a special episode of Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manese. To mark the program's partnership with Nike, Monocle is sitting down with the company's Chief Sustainability Officer, Noel Kinder, to learn how Nike is leading the way and setting a new agenda when it comes to sustainable practices. Monocle's US editor, Christopher Lord, spoke to Noel to understand how and why industry-leading standards of sustainable manufacture are now woven, sometimes literally, into the very fabric of this great business. Noel tells Chris how he's bidding to mainstream circularity, how leveraging the local is bringing Nike closer to its consumers, and why everyone at Beaverton and around the world cares about the real and metaphorical footprints that their products leave behind. Here's Chris to kick it off. So we're talking to you up there in Nike HQ up in Portland, Oregon, a place I've been to and know well. I wanted to start, first of all, by talking about your time at Nike. You've been with the brand for well over two decades. You've seen the evolution of its relationship with sustainability, but also you've had such a hand in the development of how it sources its materials, its manufacturing. You've also had a spell in Vietnam. Talk to me about that evolution of your role at Nike and what you've learned by being so close to those supply chain questions about, you know, the future of how sustainability is going to look for a manufacturer, for a brand of the scale of something like Nike. Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a great question, Christopher. I mean, I've really been fortunate to have a very diverse career history at Nike. I often refer to myself as a little bit of a mutt from a career standpoint, having done a bunch of different things in my time here. But I think you raised rightly some of the more seminal moments in my career, one of which was spending three years as a general manager in Vietnam. I spent some time in the apparel business as well, uh, running the planning function, finance, strategy, etc. And I think one of the things that that was really helpful to me coming into this role was understanding the basic functions of the company and and really how we operationalize things like sustainability. And and when I came into this role, one of the things that we talked very specifically about was the, the remit that I had to deputize the company in service of the goals that we had committed to very publicly. And in order to do that, we needed to make sustainability an operational reality. And so we did that in a couple different ways. But first and foremost, it was really integrating it into the fiber and the fabric of the way that we operate. And what that has meant organizationally is that we have leaders in every major function of the company, whether that's in the design function, the advanced innovation function, Nike retail, uh, which we call Nike direct operations and logistics, manufacturing, very senior leaders, usually at the VP level who sit at the table of, of the leadership function within that team and really drive the sustainability agenda specific to that function. And what that's allowed us to to do is kind of deputize, like I said, those folks in service of their particular contribution to the things that we've committed to, whether that's lower air freight and transportation to improve our carbon footprint in that regard, adoption of more environmentally preferred materials in the design and, and commercialization of our products. That, that operational structure has worked really, really well in accelerating the momentum. It's really interesting. I mean, no, you've been chief sustainability officer there at Nike for about five years. For a lot of firms and industries out there, in a way, it's quite a new role and a new title, and yet has very quickly become top table, pivotal in so many businesses, especially in design and fashion, who are thinking about the future of how we make things and how we live. How do you think you've shaped that role? And when you came to it, you talked about then about sort of running it through the whole company, making it so ingrained in the fabric of Nike. But what were the ambitions that you set out when you took the reins of that new role? 
Well, like I said, it was really about operationalizing it. You know, sustainability had been such a part of the company culturally for such a long time that when I took over the reins from my predecessor, she and I talked really deliberately about what the next step in terms of Nike's sustainability journey really was. And so for us, that meant that that organizational integration that I mentioned earlier, but that also is is paired with the overall governance structure that we have as a company and really the specific objectives that we set out. So if you think about that or, that organizational structure, it's really, really important, but an organizational structure serves a strategy. And our strategy at a very high level, our brand positioning is move to zero, zero carbon and zero waste. Well, that's very aspirational. It's motivating and inspirational, but it has to be underpinned by very qualitative and quantitative metrics that can guide business decision making. And so we have these 13 enterprise targets across all aspects of sustainability, whether that's carbon reduction, waste reduction, the chemistries we use in our products, um, how we interact with our suppliers and, and how they interact with their employees, the water that goes into our processes. And so those 13 targets obviously are the kind of the major guideposts for the work that we do as a company. But then you can't extract that from the needed governance across the enterprise. And so when I say operationalize, what I mean is every quarter we're sitting down to look at how we're progressing against those targets. What are the things that we need to do differently in order to achieve them? What are the systemic barriers that may be outside the operations of our company that are that are preventing us from getting where we need to go? And then I get the pleasure of going to our board of directors once a quarter and, and reporting on that progress. And so I think all of those things come together and really have come together in, in a perfect storm in the best possible way over the last four or five years to accelerate the momentum. And so I think that you see that in the results that we're achieving. They're not perfect. They're, they're never where we want them to be. There's always more work to be done. We love to say there's no finish line. And I think that's really true in this space. But I think we've created the cross currents in the company that are, are carrying us in the direction we want to go. Now, last year, Noel, I came up to the Nike campus in Beaverton, Oregon, and spoke to your colleague, the chief design officer there, John Hoke III. And he talked to me a little bit about what he called regeneration. And he said it's going to be a very important part of design's future in general. And what that means, as he described it, was, you know, he said, it's how a shoe becomes a shirt, becomes a basketball, becomes a bag, and then eventually goes back to being a shoe. And I wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit in Nike's own sustainability journey so far. You know, does that vision line up with what you see the next few years looking like? And are there any milestones on that route to the kind of circular economy that gets talked about so much these days in manufacturers of scale? It's such an exciting space. Uh, you know, I, I get goosebumps when I think about the work that's happening in the innovation space. And these are really tough problems to, to solve, no question about it. But I'm really fortunate to work with a visionary like John Hoke, who kind of sees his way toward the future and, and can motivate and, and inspire the, the hundreds of designers that we have here to work in service of that. You know, things like uh, chemical recycling of fabric, uh, the ability to deconstruct footwear. You've seen some of the, the examples that we have of the ISPA link that was put together without using adhesives. They're really starting to play in this space where maybe we haven't solved the entire problem of circularity, but we're starting to chip away at certain components. Things like Nike Ford is a great example where that material in a perfect world could be, that garment stripped of its trims and tabs could be fed right back into that machine and make 
made into another garment. Um, and so I think we're really starting to see early signs of where circularity can become more mainstream. Now, no question, we're a big company. Uh, scale is certainly an advantage for us, but it's one of those things that scale in this space requires us to really vet these solutions in, in a really meaningful way so that when they are ready to go to scale, we're driving the impact that we want to. Now, one of the key pillars, if you like, of that drive towards circularity is what's called the recreation program at Nike, which actually had its debut right where I am here in Los Angeles. And the principle of this, in a way, is that Nike works with a local manufacturer in a city somewhere around the world, finds vintage garments and, if you will, upcycles them, returns them back to the market as reconstituted sportswear. It's an amazing vision. And you're bringing it to London and to Paris this summer. And I want to just talk about that. Explain to me the thinking there of what drives recreation. What was it about that, if you will, that you were testing as a model for Nike for the future? Yeah, it's such a fun program. And I, I think it's one of those things where uh, our ability to be creative and, and innovative really drives uh, our, our ability to think differently. And, and this is a great example of giving new life to product that was probably at the end of its life and doing it in a way that really harnesses the creativity of a local partner, oftentimes in neighborhoods that are underserved. And so it, it's really that notion that Things aren't done when we all think they're done. Durability is a form of sustainability and, and transforming durability from just lasting longer to being entirely new creations. I mean, I have to wear what's age appropriate for me, <laughs> but my kids see this stuff and, and it's really, they really get inspired by it. Not just because it's a sustainability message, but because it's really, really inspiring design. And so I'm really excited to see where this goes. I think Paris and London are going to be fantastic stories because it blends all the aspects of sustainability, durability, reuse, creativity, inspiring design. And we're giving a voice to some designers in places that maybe otherwise wouldn't get that platform. And, and we're super excited to help elevate them and show what they can do. And of course, these great manufacturers that you're working with there in London and Paris, you've got Greater Goods and also Sarah Moore. And I wonder localization is talked about so much. We're in an age where people talk more and more about nearshoring, friendshoring, especially here in the United States, as being some of the future of supply chains and so on. I wonder, is that key as you see it, localization, working to bring those products, if you will, where they're made closer to the consumer? Is that what you see in the years ahead in terms of getting to zero waste, zero emissions, those goals that we talked about for Nike? And what are the challenges of that, do you find? It's certainly a tool in the toolbox, no doubt about it. I mean, even if you look at our digital uh, strategy for distribution, it's getting closer to the consumer, positioning inventory closer to the consumer. And and we know that finding the intersections of incentive between sustainability and and the growing business that we have is an accelerant to sustainability. You know, if you if you look at again that digital strategy, we're using a more distribution network that puts our inventory closer to our consumers, and it also reduces our carbon footprint because that product not being put on a plane or transported any further than it needs to be. And so I think localization in the spirit of recreation, you know, it has all of those benefits that we talked about before, but anytime that you can get closer to your consumer, that you can position your inventory closer to your consumer, and you can really leverage those local insights, I think that any company who is connected to their consumer would welcome that opportunity. 
And you talk there about, you know, the importance of localization, getting into local communities and manufacturing in places that maybe have been a bit overlooked by industry for some time. But there's also a question here about, frankly, whether the public really cares about this stuff. I mean, how engaged they are with the matter of sustainability. And I wonder, you know, for a big brand like Nike, what I sense is that more and more these days, the consumer and the public have become more and more savvy about the difference between what is roughly called greenwashing, which is, if you like, what looks good on paper, but actually in practice is only really nudging things at a very small level, and then actual real change and drive towards sustainability. How much of a pressure is that, if you like, for you and for big brands like Nike? How much, how present is that in the minds there? Yeah, it's a really important question, Christopher. I think that there is an obligation that if you are going to produce something that you feel is more sustainable, that you you show your homework, as it were. And so, you know, when we put out Nike Forward, we made the claim that it is 70% less carbon intensive than traditional fleece. And we showed the data associated with that. I think that's really, really important because sustainability is an incredibly nuanced topic. You can talk about the impact of waste. You can talk about water. You can talk about carbon footprint. And so as products continue to, at least in our space, continue to aim the the impact against the impact of all of those areas, we have an obligation, whether that's through our impact report, which we just launched a few months ago, we we consider that effectively our, our report card on how we're doing, or product specific information to really show how we're reaching those goals and and specifically what the data that backs up those claims. I think that will continue to be the standard for us as a brand and 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 I think it will be the standard standard for all brands in our industry and maybe even beyond. You talk there about storytelling and that's really interesting because I think materials themselves often tell a great story and as a you know we talked before about John Hoke and his big design team there at Beaverton in, in the Nike campus. I wonder about materials themselves about how they might fuel creativity amongst designers and what I mean by that is you know the journey to source more sustainably in a way, how does that inspire design, do you think? You know, does that create new ways of thinking when it even comes to the look, the feel, the the way that you think about a product and conceive it when you're having to, if you like, not take always the easiest route. You're looking for the most sustainable way to make this thing and that journey might end up influencing the design in a way that takes it to somewhere no one could anticipate. I think that's absolutely right, Christopher. I really do. You know, there are a million different examples. Let's start with Space Hippie, for example. Obviously, the aesthetic of Space Hippie was really intended to be a very overt aesthetic to demonstrate that this was a really different product, that it was really pointed very specifically at achieving a particular sustainability outcome. And so the design reflected that, right? You had the speckled crater foam. You had the, the upper that was space waste that clearly looked different. In fact, the joke was that it looked like dryer lint. You know, I think that the design teams really embrace that ethos. Now, that's not always the case, of course, right? And we kind of differentiate between, let's call it the appetizer, something like Space Hippie that's very overt, and the main course, which might be something like converting the Legend T, a really basic but high-volume garment, into recycled polyester. It may not show up from a design aesthetic to be overtly sustainable, but it drives incredible impact. And so we're always finding that balance between 
surprising and delighting the consumer with that aesthetic that is very unique and different and, and a demonstration of the possible with the things that really drive impact at scale. And obviously with the history of innovation that we have and the asset that we have in, in the way that we've approached that in, in the last five decades or more, we're really good at taking those innovations and then scaling them into the, the broader product line. So SpaceAB, again, is a great example of that, where those some of those innovations were then taken into versions of the Air Force One or the Waffle Trainer or models that have been around for a very, very long time. So I think that we're always trying to find that balance. Now, I wonder, when we talk about innovation, the big one here, I guess, is fuel. It's not just about where you make them. It's about how you get them around the world and put them in the hands and on the backs of your fans and consumers all over the world. Now, talk me through a bit, Noel. H2 Barge 1, what's that? (laughs) That's such a fun story. So all credit to our our European colleagues. They have really been uh, leading in the sustainability journey for Nike for a very long time. And one of the things that they have recently announced is a hydrogen-powered barge to move product that comes into the Rotterdam port up to Lockdahl, which is our distribution facility for Europe, in a retrofitted barge that has removed the internal combustion engine and replaced it with a, a hydrogen-powered batteries, which is just fantastic, right? This is a short little jaunt from Rotterdam up to uh, ultimately to our facility in Lockdahl. But again, it's kind of, to, to use that turn of phrase again, it's a demonstration of the possible, right? It shows that you can do things differently, that you can do them more sustainably. And, and we, I think, feel the obligation to lead in that space well it's interesting though you know nike's a sportswear brand it's investing in innovations in barges and hydrogen powered barges mobility talk me through that why is it important for nike to be investing in that kind of thing we look holistically at our footprint as a company, uh, whether that's the products we produce, the footprints that we have with our, our contract manufacturers, or or even obviously our contract transportation providers. And so when we look at that holistically, we understand the influence that we drive across all aspects. And so it could be some of the examples we talked about before. How do we brief new materials into our products and working with materials vendors? How do we work with our manufacturing partners to lower their carbon footprint. We have a program called the Supplier Climate Action Program where some of our suppliers, some of our biggest suppliers actually, have committed to their own science-based targets. And then we work with transportation providers either directly as Nike or sometimes part of a consortium, even with our direct competitors, to kind of signal the demand for a different way of doing things. And I think that Barge is a great example of that, but that also holds true for things like sustainable air fuel, where we know that as part of a consortium of of big transporters around the world, big customers of of transportation companies, if we ask for these things to change, they sometimes will listen to us. I just wonder, for so many smaller brands these days, sustainability is so important to what they want to present to the world. And in some cases, quite often more front and centre in their brand than it is for the bigger manufacturers and brands out there. I wonder, trickle-down effect. You know, when a company the size of Nike really leans into its sustainability goals and recognises that it's a long road to get to where it wants to be. What's the trickle-down effect there? What does that mean for your industry at large? Because it's not just about Nike here, is it? To get to the kind of sustainability that you want to achieve, it's sort of raising small boats, if you like. That's right. No, it's a really good point. We have no illusions that we can do this on our own, no question about it. And because we've been on the journey for so long... I think we recognize that we have a leadership role to play, no question about it. 
We've learned a lot over the last 20, 25 years. We know what we're good at. We know where we need help. But we also recognize the, the power of collaboration. And so unsurprisingly, I have great relationships with my partners. I have great relationships with my peers at our direct competitors, sometimes a bit outside the normal scope of what you consider a competitor. And we talk about these things together. We understand that we need to help each other solve the problems that we have, whether that's a small brand that considers themselves natively sustainable or a big brand that's been doing this for decades and is trying to retrofit their operations. So I think there's power in numbers. I think we learn from each other. And frankly, when it comes to those bigger, kind of more intractable problems like, let's say, power grids in the countries where we source our products, a collective voice is much more powerful than just a single brand. Now, it can be hard to cast your eye so forward when there's so much technical innovation happening all the time. But I wonder, Noel, just if you can just sort of cast your mind forward and stare into the crystal ball a bit about where the next few years go. I look at Nike's Move to Zero collection, it's 20% recycled materials right now. That's substantial, but there's still a long way to go to get to that full circular economy, you know, shoe that becomes bag, becomes shirt that we started talking about earlier. What do the next few decades look like about getting to those goals that you talked about earlier in our conversation? Boy, that's a tough question. You're asking me to predict the future. But I, I consider myself a cautious optimist, and I get the pleasure of seeing a lot of the nascent technology, the things that are in very early stages but hold so much promise. And I do think that we'll get more and more circular. I do think that there will be a day when you can take a used garment, your your stinky old <laughs> workout shirt, and hopefully to some form of deposit where it can become yarn for yet another shirt at some point in the future. I think that the same is true of footwear. There's some technologies out there that I will get in deep trouble if I mention what they are, but we're looking at that will really revolutionize things like circularity. And so I remain cautiously optimistic. You know, I sit in in Beaverton, Oregon. Oregon was the pioneer of something called the bottle bill, where you placed a deposit on your bottles when you bought your can of soda or beer. And when you brought them back, you were able to get your deposit back. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll do that for our garments and that will fuel even more circularity. And I just wonder then, with that in mind, Noel, next sustainability frontiers, we've talked barges. We've talked, you know, bags that become shoes and also, you know, potentially new ways that old vintage clothes could become sportswear. I just wonder the next big sustainability frontier for you and for Nike. Boy, great question. I really think it's materials. You know, if you break down my job into two discrete buckets and we just focus on carbon for a minute, there are basically two levers we have as a company. First and foremost, it's the materials that we brief into our products, rubber, leather, polyester, things like EVA, which form the cushioning basis for a lot of our shoes. I really think you're going to see a revolution in those materials. I think you're starting to see it now, whether it's bio-based materials, recycled materials that, that are indistinguishable from virgin materials. I really think that's going to be the revolution. And then the, the other bucket is renewable energy in the supply chain, the power that it takes to make those materials, to turn those materials into textiles, and then to turn them into finished goods. I think that that's really where I will continue to spend a lot of my effort and a lot of Nike's political profile, if you will, um, profile as a leader in the industry is articulating the need for our supply chain to continue to be fueled by greater and greater amounts of renewable energy. Noel Kinder, Chief Sustainability Officer at Nike, talking to Monocle's US editor, Christopher Lord. To find out more about the work Noel and his colleagues around the world are doing, head to sustainability.nike.com now. 
And that's all for this special episode of Monocle on Design. For more design stories, stay tuned at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to David Stevens and Steph Chungu for their work on today's show. I'm Nick Benice. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>